This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? My guest is Sue Inches. She's worked on environmental issues in state government in Maine for 25 years, and she currently teaches environmental advocacy in various private colleges, and she's the author of Advocating for the Environment, How to Gather Your Power and Take Action. So to begin with, why don't you talk a bit about the work you did in Maine government and how you got involved with that? Yes, certainly. It's a great question. So 
my career had been in marketing. I was always interested in communications. And so I went into state government originally with a marketing position. I was actually marketing Maine Seafood, but very quickly saw that public policy was also communications. And so I took another position where I was doing environmental advocacy and lobbying on behalf of the governor. And so when I did that, it was really wonderful because I worked on many different environmental issues on behalf of the state. So it was a very dynamic and interesting career. So how did you shift from that into teaching? Well, you know, my political career, in a way, it came to an end when we elected a right-wing governor who wasn't really interested in environmental issues. And so I sort of realized that I actually had a body of knowledge that I could teach to students on how to be an effective advocate. So I created a syllabus, and I sent that out to several colleges, and two colleges immediately picked it up and invited me to teach. So that's how it happened, and then it turns out that students, particularly people that are studying environmental studies or environmental science, have been really interested in communications and how they can have an impact on environmental policy. So that's how I got into that. So now that you're teaching this environmental advocacy work with young people, how do you find that they respond to the challenges of this kind of advocacy work in our current state of the world? Well, you know, that is a great question because the first thing that students say to me is that, you know, they've studied environmental science or environmental policy, but they're very depressed because they don't know what to do about it. And so they have really liked my course, which gives them tools and methods for, you know, advocating for the environment and having an impact on policy. And then also to your question, a big part of what I write about is how to understand people who hold a different point of view. Because, as you know, politics is very polarized these days. And so I spent a lot of time on understanding other worldviews and how to create bridges so that people who have maybe not been so supportive of environmental issues or climate issues, how you can speak to them in ways that would bridge the differences. So we actually do work quite a bit on that in my classes. And we're going to talk a lot more about that pretty soon. You write about shifting power from the elite to the people. And this issue of this polarization exists on all levels of politics from the elite down to the people. But you say that we only need a critical mass of about 3.5% to get to accomplish things. Could you talk more about that and where that number comes from? Yes, absolutely. So that number came from research that was done globally. And what they found was that when there was, you know, government changes, usually only 3.5% of the public was needed in order to make those changes. So that was a study that was done a while back. It was an academic study, very well researched. So that's where that came from. Now, I think we probably do need more than that on climate change and environmental policy. But the point that is really important is that the citizens' voices are so important and so much more powerful than people realize. So if citizens don't speak up, what happens is we get public policy that's driven by the paid lobbyists, many of whom are corporations. And so it's just so vitally important that the citizens' stories and voices of how you know, policies are affecting them and the environment around them. It's all about individual stories and how public policy has affected you and I 
those voices need to be heard if we want to have the clean and healthy environment that I think most people want to have. So the other point I can make related to the question is that in 1970, on the first Earth Day, 22 million people showed up across the country for Earth Day events. And that was 10% of the population at the time of this country, right? 220 million, 22 million showed up. That was enough to create the foundation for all of the major environmental laws that we have today. So the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, um, the EPA, the Superfund, all of those entities were created between 1970 and 1980, and it was a result of the Earth Day demonstrations in 1970. So I think basically what we need to do is be at the same level of participation now that we were in 1970, and I think it can be done, but we're not there yet. The climate strikes, which were really big and important events in 2019, only 4 million people showed up for those. So it was quite a bit less than Earth Day in 1970. So I think, you know, again, this is an indicator that we need more participation. And if we have more citizen participation, we can make the changes that we need to make. Mm-hmm. I grew up in New York City, and I moved up to Vermont in seventh grade in 1970, and our entire school went out and mm. picked up garbage along the roadsides on Earth Day. And it was really a wonderful, wonderful experience. Fortunately, we were blessed with really good weather, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. That is great to hear, and many people did that, including myself, and it kind of gets to another point that I like to sort of remind people is that advocacy actually can be fun. I mean, we can do fun activities like that. I'm engaged in a project in Maine right now, which we call Art Builds, and what it is is we bring all these art materials and we have people paint their own lawn signs for the environment, and the response to this has been great. People just really enjoy rolling up their sleeves and making a statement about the environment. And that's as simple as advocacy can be. It's making a homemade lawn sign that says, you know, care for the earth. So, yeah, absolutely, there are things that, you know, ordinary citizens can do like that that have an impact and they can be enjoyable. So it seems on the face of it that it's really easy to do stuff that's good for the environment and for the world. But on the other hand, we're finding that it's not so easy to get people involved in meaningful ways. How do you approach that? Well, that is something I like to talk about because one of the things I hear from people is, I don't have time to be an advocate. Well, my response to that is, well, you can be an environmental advocate in whatever it is that you are already doing. So, for example, if you are a landscaper, you can educate your clients about pesticides on your lawn and how destructive they can be. If you're a chef or a cook, you can source local ingredients and organic ingredients, and then you can explain why that's important. So I say to everybody, you know, look at what you're already doing and figure out how you might be an environmental advocate in what you're already doing. I mean, of course, we need people to testify in front of, you know, city councils and state legislatures too, but My thing is, everyone can be an advocate, and and everybody needs to be. And you say that we need to begin by thinking differently about the world and our place in it in order to Mm -hmm. change things. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Our country and most of the developed world was based on extracting resources from the earth without cleaning up, without putting anything back. 
And that is not a sustainable way to be. And so I do talk a lot about that in the beginning of the book and how we have to change basically how we think about this and how we behave because we can't continue to take things from the earth and not clean up and not put back. And so, yeah, it takes a whole different mindset. It takes a mindset of, wait a minute, we're all part of the earth. We're not just a, we shouldn't be trying to conquer the earth or dominate the earth, but in fact, the earth is a partner that supports our lives through providing food and water. You know, the earth provides the elements that allow us to live. So we need to also think of the earth as a living thing that needs, you know, to live as well and needs nurturing from us. So it is a shift. It's a shift in how we've been thinking. And one of the biggest parts of that shift is changing kind of what we allow corporations to do. I mean, to me, to my way of thinking, allowing corporations to pollute the earth without cleaning it up and being responsible for the results is really something we have to change. And, and we have to change our thinking and we have to change, you know, what we allow corporations to do. So, yes, that's very important. We have to learn to think differently and learn to do things differently if we're going to sustain life on the earth. So how do we get people to do that? How do we get masses of people to shift the way they think and to begin to question the way they think? Because I think we can see in the world how people get so entrenched in their own belief systems and stories about reality to the point where they're willing to go to war about it. Yeah, absolutely true. But I think the very first thing is to ask the questions is to question assumptions. So, for example, one of the things that really is heartening to me is that young people have said, you know, is it right to leave a very, you know, degraded environment to our generation to fix? I mean, this is a moral question they're asking. Is this right to leave the earth and, you know, a warming climate to us? And so I think, you know, it's asking that question and then acting on it. And it's encouraging to see what's happening. And we need to question even more. Like, for example, some things we've already done a good job on. We questioned back in really the 1970s and 80s, you know, we were using rivers across the country as sewer pipes, you know, for corporations, right? So, you know, the rivers were so polluted, they were catching on fire and they smelled badly and people did not want to live anywhere near them. And we questioned that, you know, in the 1970s. We said, wait a minute, is it right for our rivers to be just open sewers? And as a result of that questioning, we passed the Clean Water Act, we cleaned up the rivers, and now many rivers have, you know, walking trails alongside them, riverfront property is considered even better than, you know, it's, it's an asset uh, now, a public asset to have, you know, the waterfront along rivers. And that's a complete shift, and it started with shifting our thinking and asking that question, is it right? for our rivers to be so polluted they're catching on fire, which they were back in the 1970s. So it all starts with a question, and then from that, finally, action will be taken. But without the questioning of assumptions, nothing happens. So the very first thing is to question and to dialogue with people about it and to write about it, and then action follows that. And somewhere in there is the creation of a shared vision of the kind of change that that needs to be taken. Yes, definitely. And one of the areas where I see a shared vision really emerging is in more equality for all kinds of people. You know, you look at Black Lives Matter, for example, and they're envisioning a society where they are actually equal. And this is the kind of vision we need. We need a vision where 
there's equality among people, where we care and nurture the earth, you know, where we really, you know, look to a different kind of society. In fact, in, in my book, the last chapter is it's an epilogue, and in that chapter is a vision. And the vision is basically where all life is revered, respected, and nurtured. Right now, we're really not <laughs> not subscribing to a vision like that, but I think we can and we should. And it all kind of starts with that vision of where are we trying to, to go. And I think that's where we are trying to go, is we want a, a healthy planet and healthy future for our upcoming generations. And so it's important to hold on to that vision. And we need to do that with our economic system as well, because currently our economic system is based on profit and growth, which has produced this rampant consumerism in the West that is just completely out of control. Yeah, yeah, you're so right about that. Many other writers have pointed this out as well, that basically, in fact, uh, John Perkins is a writer who calls it the death economy, and he says that because if we keep going on the trajectory that we're on, basically it can't be sustained, and it does lead to basically death of many things in the environment, perhaps including ourselves. So where we have to go is to a different kind of economy, one that actually values the earth and values people. And so that's, you know, basically the life economy is what he calls that. And, and that's where we need to go. And that is a pretty, it's a pretty big shift. And the first thing we need to do, I think, is ask more of our corporations. You know, they need to be contributing more than just endless product, but also some social good. So, yes, we do need to make that change. It is challenging, but it is starting to happen. And I also would say, you know, we have benefited a lot from the fossil fuel economy. Think of medicine and education and, you know, we've gotten a lot out of it, but it's just plain not sustainable. That's the problem. We can't keep going in the same direction. So what we need to do is realize some of the gains we've made and then start to make a shift to a more life-affirming economy. So how, how do we shift people's perspective? Because you gave the example of the way our nation came together during World War II to support the war effort as an example mm-hmm. of the power of people coming together to support a shared vision. Yeah, that's true. And the Second World War is a really interesting example. And of course, most of us alive today didn't actually experience it, but maybe some of our parents and grandparents did. But what happened then was that every person in this country contributed to that effort. So you had grandmothers writing Christmas cards to soldiers. You had other mothers rolling bandages and sending care packages to soldiers. You had young women taking jobs in the trades that were typically only for men, things like welding and carpentry and those kinds of things, pipe fitting. So basically, when that war took place, Everyone in this country had some way that they're contributing towards it, and that's how we actually won that war. It was really quite a miracle, and it shows how Americans really can come together when there's a need and basically succeed. And so I think climate change is an analogy to the Second World War. We need everybody to be working towards reducing the burning of fossil fuels and bringing in of renewable energy. So this is something everybody needs to be doing, whether you're making cloth shopping bags for people to use instead of plastics, which are petroleum-based, whether you are putting solar panels on your house, whether you might be just writing a little piece in your high school newsletter. I mean, everybody can do something. 
And so that's the point that I'm trying to make with the Second World War is when everybody contributes to the same vision and going in the same direction, we can succeed. We are a can-do country, and I think we can do that. And I think it's really important that we do because we're the top consumer of and burner of fossil fuels in the world, and we need to take the lead and demonstrate how we can have a successful and thriving economy without warming the climate to the point where it's a catastrophe. So how do we get people on board with this, particularly the people who are polarized on the opposite end of this political spectrum? Well, one of the things that I talk to my students about, and I've written about as well, is to relate to people on the level of their personal experience. So you might not want to sort of just blast about climate change, but rather talk to people by saying, have you experienced you know, any uh, larger storms or more rain, or perhaps it's drought and and a lot less rain. You know, we're looking at major drought in the West Coast right now. So it's really about, you know, relating to people through personal experience is the way to cut through a lot of the sort of rhetoric and opposition is to say, well, what's your experience? You know, and you'd be amazed what people will tell you. You know, they'll say, well, I used to fish for trout in a certain stream, and now it's too warm for the trout to survive there. You know, so so it's really, and that's how you can be curious, and that's how you can build bridges, is by finding out what people's experience is. Here in Maine, you know, we have a lot of people that like ice fishing, and you could ask them, like, you know, does, does the ice melt, or is, it, is the ice not even thick enough to go ice fishing this year, which the last several years, it hasn't been safe to go ice fishing, and that's something people have done for, you know, hundreds of years, and all of a sudden, we've had several seasons where it wasn't really safe to be out on the ice. So that's how you get through a lot of the, you know, the rhetoric and the opposition is to say, well, what's your experience and why do you think that's happening? So anyway, that's what I suggest is we need to find ways to really, and that's communicating from the heart and being curious about somebody's experience as a way to kind of bridge some of these gaps. And it really has worked. I've seen a number of sportsmen's groups, fishing and hunting groups who have taken up the climate change banner. And these groups tend to be populated by sort of rugged individualists. They tend to be politically conservative, but they're seeing so much change that they're saying, wait a second, I think climate is an issue for us too. So that's what I tend to teach and suggest to people. In fact, 40 sportsmen's and outdoors groups went to Congress a few years ago and said, you know, we need more action on climate change. So absolutely, people do see this and want to take action, which is very encouraging, and we need more of that. Now, there's also the issue of when things like climate change become so overwhelming, because in the media, we're almost getting clubbed over the head with these prognostications that, you know, we have only 10 or 11 years to rein in our insanity. And at this moment, it just doesn't look like that's happening. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I liked your phrase, clubbed over the head, because it does seem like that. And especially lately, there have been two major reports from the United Nations, which are 14,000 different studies synthesized into a report recently. And there were 200 scientists that authored this report, and it was saying terrible things like, well, we already have some irreversible effects of climate change, and if we act right now, we can, we can limit that and still live on the planet, but it's pretty scary stuff. And, and of course, the problem with that is that 
then we become paralyzed and we become depressed and we can't take any action because we're just feeling so doomed. And I, I run into a lot of people when I talk about my book who feel that way. They're, they're just like, I just don't even know what to do. I feel so overwhelmed. And what I say to that is take the first step. You know, if you just do something small, like switch to cloth shopping bags, or maybe you write a little note to your town counselor that says, I really care about climate change, you know, would you, you know, be willing to support some legislation? You know, just taking any small step can make you feel better. And I really encourage people to do that. And then you find that the other people that are out there working on this tend to be caring and thoughtful people. You might make some new friends if you do take some steps. So I always encourage people to just do something, it'll make you feel better. And if we all do something, then we do really have a chance of creating a different future. So it becomes a kind of a self-reinforcing, you know, cycle if we do that. So it is easy to get overwhelmed. Even I can't focus on bad news all the time. It's just too difficult. But on the other hand, there's a lot of good happening. And, you know, I encourage people to just jump in and add to that because that's, you know, that is what will make you feel better anyway, and it's the right thing to do. And you write about Sherry Mitchell's 80-10-10 rule. What is that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love the 80-10-10 rule. What, what that's basically saying is spend 10% of your time sort of cleaning up the damage, 10% of your time refuting or, or fighting back, and then the remaining 80% of your time should be spent on creating the future that you do want. And that is really, it relates to what I was just saying. You know, if we focus on what we do want, it feels better, it gives us a much better chance of actually achieving it, and it creates momentum in the right direction. So that's what 80-10-10 is, is spend 80% of your time, you know, working on creating and supporting the vision of a healthy planet in the future. And if we do that, we've got a chance of getting there. If we spend all of our time fighting back or all of our time cleaning up, we need to do some of that. But if we focus only on what's wrong, we'll never get there. And that's interesting to sort of note that environmentalists are often accused of only saying no to everything. And that shouldn't be. I mean, I think there is a lot of that. I think there's a need sometimes, certainly a need when there's a, you know, a permit for a big project that's going to create destructive pollution, then you should say no. But really, we have to focus on the future we do want for our children and our grandchildren in order to get there. So that's why I put that in the book, because without focusing on what we want, we'll never achieve it. And in relation to that, you talk about asking what you call better questions in the face of the existential challenges we have, and then focusing on the future we want. So could you give some examples of what you call better questions and how that can work? Yeah, so the better questions are really questioning the assumptions that we're making. So, for example, we've started to question burning fossil fuels, of course, right? We're saying, well, this looks like it's pretty bad for the environment, and we're questioning that. But we haven't gone far enough. A better question would be, should we allow burning of fossil fuels at all? I mean, in some places, like, for example, I know that in Denmark, you cannot install a new oil or gas furnace. It's illegal. That's because they ask the question, wait a minute, should we be allowing this? But here in the United States, we're still fighting over pipelines. There's the number three pipeline in Minnesota where Native Americans and others are protesting right now. Well, wait a minute, should we ask the question, should we be building fossil fuel infrastructure 
I mean, that's a better question, because if we build that infrastructure, then we're kind of stuck with it for the next 30 years. I mean, the people that invested want to amortize their investment. So, you know, that's the question that needs to be asked. Should we even be building this? So we just need to keep going deeper, like in that example, and say, wait a second, you know, what's what's the assumption being made here? I mean, if you build a new pipeline today, you're assuming that we're going to be building, we're going to be burning fossil fuels for another 30 years. need to question that because it's been shown. Science has shown us that if we do that, we create catastrophic change in the environment that makes it almost unlivable to be on the earth. So that's what I mean by better questions. We need to go a bit deeper in some places. We've done well, you know, in other areas. We questioned about our polluted rivers. That's good. But we need to keep going and keep going deeper and asking the deeper questions. My guest is Sue Inches. She teaches environmental advocacy in various private colleges, and she's the author of Advocating for the Environment, How to Gather Your Power and Take Action. So after asking these deeper questions and approaching policy, then we have to bring it to our legislators and decision makers in the world And you write about how they are becoming weary of people trying to influence them. Could you talk about that dynamic and and how to work with that, how to cut through that? Yeah, that is such a great question. And I get into that late in the book in a chapter called Working with Decision Makers. Because in my advocacy career, what really worked was building personal relationships with decision makers. They are sick and tired of, they, they get deluged with email campaigns, with paid lobbyists arguing for their side of an issue. It's a difficult job to be a legislator or a city councilor. Those are hard jobs. But the good news is, is that most of those people in decision-making positions are really there because they care. And, you know, many of those jobs, particularly town, city, and state-level jobs, are either volunteer or very low paying. So they're not there to make money. They're there because they care. And so the way you cut through is by trying to create relationships based on trust, based on personal exchange of information. And if you're a citizen and you have good information, that can be so helpful to a decision maker, especially if you can present it in a very sort of calm and interpersonal way. I think that cuts through all of the emotionalism and running around that they have to put up with. So I encourage people to do that. And, you know, people might think, oh, well, how could I possibly have a personal relationship? Well, you, you actually can. And you need to look around and see, like, who you know and what friends or relatives or colleagues do you know that know a decision maker and try to get an introduction. So it really... You know, my my whole stance on advocacy is it's about personal relationships. That's how things really get done. And so you need to start to work on those. And another way people do that is through citizen groups. There are citizen environmental groups, you know, Sierra Club, Sunrise, you know, local neighborhood groups. There are groups everywhere. And that's a really nice way to collectively get to know a group and then go to your decision makers with your questions and your points of view and also to have two-way dialogues with decision makers. You know, what are their concerns? How can you put things together so that they could support you? 
so it's really, and it's that's the fun and art of advocacy, really, is learning how you can be helping your decision makers to go in the direction you want them to go. And you wrote that many Maine lawmakers told you that it only takes 10 phone calls or 10 emails to persuade them that an issue is important. Could you talk about that and how you would actually get through to them? I mean, what kind of phone calls or emails would actually work, would actually get through to them? Yeah, so that's just a great point that I love making when I'm doing book talks is that, you know, in a smaller state like Maine, only only takes 10 phone calls or messages to get the attention of a lawmaker. And people are always really surprised by that. But the truth is, is not very many people really speak up. And so it really stands out if somebody does. And the other thing about that, of course, is that no legislator or city councilor or even town councilor is going to stick their neck out on an issue. They need to know that there's somebody supporting them. So if you can go to them and say, I really care about, you know, this public park that's threatened in my area. And by the way, I've talked to other people in my neighborhood and they really care about it too. Well, that gives the decision makers some cover, right? That they know that there are people that are going to back them up or her if she takes a position. So it's so important that citizens, you know, do that about issues they care about. And then the other thing I encourage people to do is write an old-fashioned handwritten note and mail it to a decision maker, or maybe even you type it on your computer, whatever. But the whole point is, is that, you know, decision makers get deluged with emails. They can't open them all and read them all. They often have staff who open many of them. But something written by hand or mailed, the old-fashioned snail mail, can actually get their attention. And so, you know, when we're doing some work on an issue here in Maine, that's what I, you know, encourage people to do. Send a note. In fact, I had students of mine hand-delivered notes to a, they had, there was a legislator who was very unresponsive when they emailed, so they just drove to his house and put notes in the mail slot in his front door. And I guarantee you, he got those. So that's how you can cut through, very simply. And when you write a note, it doesn't have to be an analysis of the issue. All it needs to be is something from the heart, as in, you know, I care about this issue, and here's why. I mean, maybe there's a family member that has asthma. I care about air quality because my cousin or my daughter has asthma. That has impact, and so please support, you know, the clean air bill or whatever it is. So you don't have to be you know, well-educated on the issue because citizens are speaking from the heart and they're speaking about how an issue actually affects them, which actually can cut through all of the analysis that, you know, a lot of the paid lobbyists are presenting anyway. So, you know, it can be very simple and have an enormous impact. So that's how I coach people, which I do. I coach environmental groups on how to, you know, get attention for an issue is to try to speak from the heart and try to deliver something outside of, you know, social media that they might actually see. Mm -hmm. You say that we already have the solutions we need to our existential crises. Could you talk about the obstacles to implementing them and what it would take to change that? Yeah, well, of course, you know, people are very invested in the status quo. And invested can be both emotionally and financially. So that's, that's the tough thing. You know, how do we deal with people who are basically going to benefit from, you know, keeping things the same way versus changing? And certainly one way to work on that is to show the benefits of, you know, making the change. 
And very often it turns out that, you know, the benefits are even greater than people think. So, yeah, and it is hard to overcome the obstacles. It does take some work to do that. And especially it's important to be aware if you have, um, you know, well-organized and well-financed opposition on an issue. So an example of that is here in Maine, we're trying to bring our electric utilities back to local ownership. Right now, our electric utilities are owned by foreign governments. And so the tough thing about that is that those investor-owned utilities are very well-financed. They can run all kinds of television advertising, you know, and so we're just a grassroots organization saying, you know, in order to implement renewable energy at a large scale, we need to, you know, have local control of our electric utilities. And so we're just hoping that the grassroots and the truth and the authenticity of, you know, real people saying this is going to be enough to help that cause. But it's hard when you have, you know, organized opponents who, you know, will do anything they can to try to, you know, discredit your side. And, you know, so there are obstacles, but sometimes the grassroots with a lot of people, especially large numbers of people, can actually break through that. And another, of course, huge issue is the polarized left-right dilemma. And Mm -hmm. you characterize it as a strict father versus nurturing parent worldview issue that underlies that. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. A linguist and scientist named George Lakoff came up with this idea of two opposing worldviews that dominate in our country and maybe the world, but mostly we're talking about America. And it's really interesting because, you know, for him, there's just all these dilemmas, like how could you be, you know, pro-life and pro-capital punishment at the same time, right? It just didn't sort of make sense to him. And he said, there must be some internal logic going on here. And what he discovered was what we call the strict father and the nurturing parent worldviews, which basically take a wholly different approach to life, to child raising, to politics. And so often what we're dealing with when we're talking about polarization is different worldviews. And the thing about that is that you're not going to be able to change a person's worldview. That's something that they, you know, formed in their growing up and through their life. And in fact, you don't want to even challenge it because if you do, people are going to push back pretty hard because you're, you're sort of threatening what they believe. So the key to working with people with different worldviews is to find places where there's a bridge that can be made and really good advocates know how to do that. So, for example... You know, I think everyone, regardless of worldview, wants a good future for their children. So, well, maybe that's a place where, you know, you can actually create a bridge and say, well, you know, we want a really good life for our children. And in order to have that, we kind of need, like, you know, clean drinking water and clean air to breathe, you know, and start to build a bridge around that. The other thing I also tell people with regard to polarization is that you want to build bridges, but there are always going to be a certain number of people that refuse that. But that that's okay, because you don't need everyone to be in favor of environmental regulation or, you know, addressing climate change. You only need a critical mass. And what is critical mass? Well, there's a lot of sort of dispute over what that is. But if you look back at Earth Day in 1970, the critical mass there was 10% of the U.S. population in order to make the changes we made. So, you know, you don't have to have everyone, but you want to get, you know, a critical mass of people in order to change the direction we're going in. And as I say, the way to do that 
or it's very helpful, I should say, to understand different worldviews and then, you know, see if there are places where they might overlap or come together and try to build public policy based on that. So a little bit of a complicated answer, but, you know, I do go into that in the book. I have a whole chapter on the political divide and another one on creating public policy that is hopefully bridging that divide. And so it can be done, and you just have to have, you know, the right expectations because, you know, there's always going to be some opposition, and that's just the nature of humanity, I think. But on the other hand, I think that more and more people can be convinced that a healthy future is something we want, and there might be some agreement on how we might get there. Yeah, yep, that's a big one. In fact, that could be the big one that we have to deal yeah. with. So talk about the tension that exists between our desire for change and reality as it is, and that being like a source for the power for creating a new vision, and how that kind of dynamic tension can inspire us to act toward change. Well, yeah, so I think that one of the things that, that a vision does is it does create that tension between where we are and where we'd like to be. And that tension can be a motivator to change. So, you know, change isn't easy. You know, we know what we like and change is kind of an unknown. And people often aren't comfortable with the unknown or ambiguity. So that's kind of part of the resistance we have to overcome. But by holding to a vision, that kind of creates that motivating tension. And that's why I really like to emphasize how we need to have a vision. We need to hold to a vision because, you know, we're not encouraged to do that in our culture. Our media, for example, is almost completely problem-focused. It's always about the weather and the crisis and the bad news. We don't hear much good news, and we don't hear much about vision, and yet that's kind of where we need to go to feel inspired. You know, the bad news gets so bad that we feel kind of depressed and overwhelmed, as we talked about earlier, when really there's also a lot of really good things happening, and they don't get reported on very much, but we need to hold to that. We need to look for the good things that are happening and put our focus on sort of those things and where we want to go, and that will help create the inspiration and the motivation to go there. And you write about the difference between positive and negative visions, and also talk about engaging in exercises of imagination and literally building our kind of imaginal muscles to be able to imagine something completely new, even in the face of the existential crises we're facing today. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting that creating vision isn't always easy because we're so steeped in what's around us in the present that it is hard to see the future. Human beings are not particularly good at this, I don't think. But I've always been interested in it. I've always been interested in how do you create a vision of the future. And one of the things that I've found to be most helpful in that regard is actually going somewhere else. So, for example, in my career, one of the things that I did is we had a, we have a fishing industry in Maine, and they're used to doing things a certain way, and the fish stocks have declined seriously because of overfishing and so on. And so one of the things that I did is I created a field trip, I guess I'd call it, to Japan, where they have an enormous aquaculture industry. They grow scallops there. In, it's where a lot of our scallops actually come from, is the commercial-scale scallop aquaculture industry in Japan. They, they export you know, basically millions of tons of cultured scallops every year. 
So the idea was is I took a group of fishermen there to see that industry. And in fact, some of the fishermen on the trip were people who'd said, you know, I'm a hunter-gatherer, I'm a fisherman, I will never culture anything. I will never do aquaculture. But we went over there and we went out on a fishing boat and, you know, the Japanese fishermen pulled up their nets. They grow these scallops in these enclosed little nets called lantern nets. And they dumped the lantern nets on the deck of the boat. We had about a dozen people on the trip all standing in a circle when they dumped these scallops out. And I just looked around as they dumped the scallops out and watched people's eyes widen because the scallops they dumped out were huge, beautiful specimens. I mean, they would probably sell for, you know, $20 a pound and up here. So just seeing that, just seeing that in a live circumstance, it changed people's vision of what was possible. And so sometimes you need to just see something different. And it happens every day here. For example, people take field trips to look at, let's say, a solar farm or a wind turbine farm. People go look because they want to see what it's like and talk to the people about how did they do this. So sometimes to stimulate our imagination, we have to get outside of our normal sort of experience. And you can do that, of course, through, you know, watching a film, through reading a book. But I always say the best way possible, if it is possible, is to go on a field trip and talk to some different people who've tried something. And there are plenty of people. You don't have to go to Japan. It's pretty far away to go for anybody. But you could go to another town or another state or to a project that somebody's doing, you know, more locally and talk to the people and say, how did you how did you do this? So it is hard. It's sometimes hard. You know, I've, I've asked my students sometimes to write a vision of the future, just a little exercise, in-class exercise. And they have a really hard time doing it. They just can't picture it. And I do that exercise to show them how hard it is. And then, you know, when they go somewhere else and talk to people that are different from them, and sometimes that's just a matter of talking to other people who are different from you to get a different view of what could be possible. So, yeah, vision isn't always easy, but it's actually really fun to go talk to people who accomplish something different, and people are usually pretty excited to talk about what they've accomplished. So that is, I think, the best way is to, you know, try to entertain some new ideas by meeting new people and seeing something that's actually different from what you've known before. Mm -hmm. And in the Nordic countries, they have been working on different ways of seeing the world and relating to it in ways that we have been very resistant to doing. And you also write about what you call the Denmark climate tour that you brought a bunch of people on as another example of doing that. Yeah, so one of the things that I like to say that helps me be hopeful is that there actually are countries in the world that have a very egalitarian economy and who have reduced their carbon emissions significantly. I mean, there's actually success stories out there in the world for us to learn about and to see. You know, it's not like we're all struggling at the same level. There are some places that are way ahead of us environmentally, and so... One of the things I did was I created a field trip to Denmark, and I took 10 leaders from my state there with me to see what they'd done, because they've really thought about things, and, and I think they're probably 20, 30 years ahead of us in terms of their economy and their renewable energy and many other issues, too. One of the things that was really remarkable was their bicycling infrastructure. In the city of Copenhagen, they have four lanes of bicycles on the busiest streets and separate, you know, like turn signals for bicycles. And by doing that, they've kept their city, you know, really mobile. They don't have traffic jams really much at all because they limit the number of cars in the city. And then they have, I think the number is 400,000 
bicycle commuters. And they have special lanes. It's actually pretty safe. I don't feel that safe in American cities riding a bike because you're kind of one person among a lot of cars. You're all jostling for position on the road. Whereas there in Denmark, bicycles have designated basically roads and pathways and it's really safe. And they save a lot of emissions as well. And not only that, bicycling is healthy for people. So that's just one example where, you know, seeing that, if you go and experience the bicycling in Denmark, just as one example, you'll see things differently, how that is actually possible to do because they've done it. So yeah, you know, there's some great examples in the world of things that have really worked well that we can learn from. And it's really heartening. I mean, we don't have to create, you know, a new economy from scratch. We can look at what some other places have done and figure out, you know, what works, what might work for us based on other examples. You know, I would never say that, you know, the United States is exactly the same as Denmark, of course, but there's certain things they've done that we could adapt for ourselves, which would be very beneficial. Mm-hmm. And you have a section in the book about creating a Green New Deal kind of vision for the environment. Could you talk about the Sunrise Movement and how they began and how they came to create a shared vision and then actually work towards implementing it? Because it takes a lot to accomplish all of those things, and there's all sorts of pitfalls along the way that can undermine the whole process. Right, yeah, and I think, you know, I'm probably not the best expert on the Sunrise Movement, but it's a wonderful movement, mostly younger people, although they welcome all ages and all people, but, you know, they have a vision of a sustainable planet. And they got to it because basically their two founders, two young women, had witnessed things that really, you know, both inspired and and worried them about the environment. One was a woman who saw a picture of a tremendous flood in her hometown, which was in Eastern Europe. And this flood, which was devastating in her hometown, was not even reported in this country. She was in New York City and just, you know, friends of hers sent pictures. And she's like, I don't even see this on the news. So she kind of realized, wow, you know, there's a real need to create some awareness around what's really going on around the world. So, you know, there was a small group of people who got together. They started talking about climate and the environment and the need to change. And so it just grew from a very kind of a grassroots place into a worldwide movement. There are millions of followers of this now. And they have been very much working on what they call the Green New Deal, which is basically connecting the economy, the environment, the experience people have in jobs. You know, it's connecting the whole and saying we need to make a systemic change in how we do things, because not only is the earth not treated well, but employees and people working are also not treated very well. They're treated as a commodity to serve a profit-making organization, not as human beings with ideas and needs and families and so on. So anyway, so that's, you know, it's been a, a really wonderful effort. I'm looking forward to, you know, they've been doing a lot of events and they did the climate strike back in 2019 and then COVID came along. So I'm looking forward to the future when hopefully we'll be beyond COVID and we can actually get out there in the street and make some more attention around this issue. So I don't know if I totally answered your question, but, you know, they've, you know, really made an impact and it just started with a handful of people and has grown to be a pretty large movement of people, which is wonderful to see. I mean, that's that's what we need is, you know, large groups of people who have specific policy agendas and want to move them forward. Mm-hmm. And in, in your book, you also write about the pitfalls that 
people and organizations can fall into when they're um, in the process of creating visions and then working to implement them in the world strategically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things that can happen. I mean, you know, people try to work together to create a vision, and then sometimes it gets so big that they're not sure how they're going to really implement it. So, you know, then the energy sort of dissipates when they can't really figure out how to go forward. And part of the reason for that sometimes is that the people who are visionary maybe are different from the people who are going to implement. So it takes all different kinds of people for a successful movement. I write about that as well. And so sometimes the right people aren't there to actually do the implementing. One of the examples of that was the Women's March that happened right after President Trump was elected. And there was great momentum behind that. And there was a wonderful work done on a platform for the Women's March, you know, equality for women, you know, reproductive rights for women. There was a lot of really good ideas and a whole platform there, but there wasn't an organizational structure created to carry out the platform, which I'm not really criticizing. I mean, I think they accomplished a lot by having the marches, creating the attention, creating the platform. There was a lot of good media exposure there. So they accomplished a great deal, but they didn't implement because they weren't really set up to do that. So there can be, you know, there can be pitfalls, but What I always say is that you need a vision at every single level. So if you're in a small business in your town, you need a vision of where you're going. So not all visions have to be sort of global big ideas, but that we need visions at every level. Every company kind of needs to know where they're going, needs to have a vision that people, you know, buy into and work towards. And so whatever your sector is, I mean, if you're in agriculture, let's say you're in the local foods movement, you need a vision for where you're trying to go with that. If you are running a food pantry, you need a vision for that. So a vision applies at all levels and can really help motivate people to move forward. But sometimes there are pitfalls in trying to create one where people aren't able to implement or sometimes another pitfall is that some person or some group of people think that they have the vision, but it turns out that other people haven't bought in because they didn't help create it. It wasn't their vision. It was somebody else's. So, you know, vision should be, vision making should be participatory. So that's another thing that I talk about. There's a whole chapter on vision and how to create vision in the book. Something I've worked with a lot of groups to do, so I have some idea of of what it takes to succeed at that. And you say that all change processes fall into two categories, opening and closing. What does that mean? Oh, that's really interesting. So this is getting into the the kind of the process of how you create organizations and how you create any kind of initiative or movement. And in my experience, there's really two kinds of process that need to be there. And I call them opening and closing. So opening is when you are actually creating new ideas. You know, where do we want to go? What do we want to do? How do we want to do it? All about idea generation there. And so when you're creating a vision that's very open, it's about, you know, creating new ideas. But then you also have to have what I call a closing process, which is basically when you set priorities, you set goals, you decide that this one thing is very important and something else is less important. And so you need a process for closing as well. Otherwise, your vision will just be broad and lofty, but there's really no direction. So you need to have all those ideas. And then you need to do your goal setting, your prioritizing, 
you know, people use different techniques for that. They might have a voting process, but you have to narrow it down and then in order to actually take action. So you need the opening and then you need the closing in order to take action. And this is something, you know, I've been a consultant to organizations that want to create a vision or a strategic plan. And so you need to build in both opening activities and closing activities in order to be successful. So I do talk about that a little bit in the book, how to do that so that you will be successful in whatever your initiative is or whatever your strategic plan is. You need both of these elements in order to succeed. So we often feel powerless, especially about national and global issues. Could you talk about power in the context of advocacy? Because you you actually write a lot about power in this book. And also talk about where that kind of power comes from. Yeah, so I do talk a lot about power because I think that where we are right now in developed countries, especially ours, is we have an imbalance of power. We have the elite, I would call it, which is people that have both political and or financial power, and they have really kind of taken over the policy agenda. And then you have sort of all the rest of the people who feel often kind of powerless. So we do have this imbalance of power. And what I say about that is that that's why we need citizen action in order to bring back a balance. You know, the citizen voices need to be heard. And in order to achieve that, you need to organize. And organizing is creating power where none existed before. So if if you think about history of social movements, what you see is, you know, groups get together and organize and then create power. For example, you know, the tomato pickers in Florida back 25 years ago, they were working in horrible conditions, very hot weather, no shade, no restrooms on the work site, very bad housing. And they were mostly immigrants and they were very poorly paid and basically had no power. And what they did is they organized and they organized, they created a boycott of Heinz products which is where all the tomatoes were going. And they actually created power. And at the end of their campaign, which was three or four years, they got full benefits. They got restrooms on the work site. They got better housing. I mean, pretty much all our demands were met and they became empowered by organizing. So that's what it takes is organizing to, to create power where none existed before. And it's really, it's, it's just amazing the number of stories where people have done this. And right now, down in Louisiana, there's a section there called Cancer Alley. It's like a, you know, a section of the Mississippi River from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. And there's like over 100 petroleum and chemical plants located along the river there. And pretty much they located there because it was convenient. And I don't think they thought anyone would ever speak up. In fact, they go in and sell the idea by saying we're going to create a lot of jobs. And there's a, it's a very impoverished area. But now, you know, people are organizing and saying, you know, we don't want all these polluting plants in our neighborhood. I mean, they're creating power where there wasn't any before. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of power around environmental justice where people are saying, wait a second, you know, we don't want you here. You know, our children's health, our health is important and you can't do this. So that's creating power where none existed before. And that's just a really important point that I make in the book. And the book talks about your individual power as well. But you're right, there is a lot about power and using power for good 
because that's what's really important about facing our environmental issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you also write about, well, getting back to focusing on the future that we want, that this whole process isn't as difficult necessarily as we tend to make it out to be. And that when we do focus on on the future that we really want, the steps that could take us there actually begin to emerge quite naturally, spontaneously. Yeah, that's really true. Once we shift our thinking and have a vision of the future we want, then the ways of getting there start to appear. It's really interesting how much of our future and how much of this is about perception. If we're stuck in an old way and we can only see that, we won't see the solutions necessarily. But if, once we open our minds and really commit, and commitment's important too. So once we open our minds, begin to think differently and commit to change, then the avenues for making that change start to open up. And then it's up to us to follow those leads. But that's really kind of interesting and true how that happens. And this can happen both individually and for groups that as soon as we open our mind and commit to a different path, that then we start to see how to do it, the right people who can help us kind of show up in our lives. We might get recognized by the media somewhere. It's a, it's a really interesting process to see. But as soon as we turn our attention really towards what we want in a very pure way, we begin to see where we need to go with it. And also our culture, you know, we've been living under these stories of domination and separation and hierarchy and things like that. And we actually can create completely new stories, stories that are much more aligned with with the kind of world that we really do want to see, like stories of the kind of interconnection and interdependence that we're just starting to realize is the actual nature of the world and the way things actually work. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, I talk a lot about Earth stories in the book, and what I mean by that is both individual Earth stories, but also collective Earth stories. And one of the things that's really quite heartening is how people are beginning to tell Earth stories that are about connection between people, between living things, you know, between, you know, habitat. It's like we're starting to sort of tell some different stories, and one of the ways that's happening is people are studying and acknowledging indigenous stories because indigenous peoples have typically been, you know, quite connected to the earth, seeing the, you know, the plants and animals as their relations, their relatives, that, you know, we're all part of, you know, a connected living system as opposed to a different earth story where humans are at the top of a hierarchy and we dominate the earth. And that's kind of the old story right there is that, Humans are, you know, kind of the pyramid of living things, and we are to dominate all other living things, and that's how we ended up with an economy that basically extracts things from the earth and expects the earth to kind of just obey us, basically. And we're sort of shifting over to a newer story, one of connection, where we're actually not at the top of a hierarchy, but that we are part of a much larger living system, and we're just one part, and all the other living parts are important too, not just us. And so we're sort of going into a new Earth story, and I find that very encouraging because that's what we need to do in order to live sustainably, is we need to see 
all other life as being part of the same system that we're a part of and that we're partners with all these other life forms, not the boss of them. So it's really interesting. So we do need to change our perception of who we are and who we are in the context of all other life. And your last chapter in the book is titled Eight Reasons to be Optimistic in Troubled Times. Could you share some of those reasons for optimism? Yes, yeah. The last chapter is that eight reasons to be optimistic in troubled times. And it is troubled times, and there's lots of reasons to not be optimistic. But I think we have to basically practice optimism and see the good that's actually there. And so some of those reasons we've talked about already, one is that our youth have asked those moral questions and said, wait a minute, are you going to leave a messed up earth to us? Or are we going to actually change it to be more life affirming? So that's one thing. Another thing we've touched on is that we have examples. Some of the Scandinavian countries in particular, but also other places in the world, have done some really amazing work to make you know their countries more sustainable and to be more in partnership with the earth. So we've got some examples that we can work from. And we have a lot of tools. You know, we understand quite a bit about how change happens. We still need to know more, but we do have a lot of tools. And some of them I've talked about, like how to create a new vision by looking at something different and talking to different people. And also one thing I don't emphasize in the book a lot, but I do mention in that chapter technology. You know, we are experiencing new technologies that can really help us live more sustainably. I don't believe that technology alone can make us sustainable, but I do think there are technologies out there, certainly renewable energy is a whole field of technologies that can help us to live more sustainably. So it's really encouraging. In fact, that's probably a whole book somebody else can write about, and probably has been written, about how technology can help move us to a sustainable future. So there's a lot there, and I'm not an expert on that, but I I can just see that right now we're in a really very entrepreneurial time with the opportunity to create a lot of new technology that will help us be more sustainable. So there's quite a few different, you know, trends and reasons that, if you look at them, are kind of going in a really good direction. And that's the purpose of that last chapter, is to show what some of those things are, because there really are reasons to be optimistic if we focus on them, which, as I mentioned earlier, the media does not, but we can certainly, as our own individuals and our own groups of friends and family, we can focus on some of the really good things that are happening. Mm -hmm. And your last reason for optimism of those eight reasons is that our current disruptions are actually great opportunities for change, which create the kind of dynamic tension that can actually galvanize the kind of desire we need Yeah, that's actually right. So one of the things that's really interesting is that major changes in history tend to take place during times of great disruption, you know, because basically, you know, what we're finding is that, you know, there are a lot of ways that we've been that just are not going to work, but that that provides the opening for something different. So I talk about this a little bit in the introduction to the book, too, where we're kind of at a choice point. You know, we can decide to just keep going the way we are, and maybe we go down into history as a species that didn't survive. Or we could choose, you know, a healthy future and use this opportunity. I mean, we can see how, you know, the inequality in human life is unsustainable. I mean, you know, so many people have no real opportunity to create a good life for themselves, and this is worldwide, you know. Well, that could be an opportunity for creating a more 
egalitarian economy and society. I mean, there really is enough food and water for everyone. It's just that politically and economically, some people don't have access to it. So absolutely, I think that, you know, our times are really troubling, and there is an opportunity there to create a different way of being that is much more sustainable. And I just hope that enough people realize that and seize the opportunity to choose a sustainable future, because we have that choice right now, rather than just going down the path we're on and poisoning the earth and the atmosphere to the point where we can't survive. So it's pretty important that we're at this choice point. And my hope is that a critical mass of people, maybe 10% or more, come together and say, look, we want a healthy future, and here's what we're going to do to get there. So yes, the opportunity is exciting, actually, to me that we have. And really other times, you know, there have been so many times in history where we sort of almost went under, you know, think about like the 1920s and the Great Depression, there was huge inequality there, the economy tanked. At the same time, there were extreme movements that were trying to take advantage of the chaos and become totalitarian state. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff happening, but, you know, it turned out that we chose a different path. And we created the New Deal, which allowed a lot of people to work and a lot of people to survive, not everyone, but a lot of people. And we chose a different pathway. So I'm very hopeful that we choose the life-affirming pathway going forward. And we have that choice to make right now. And you say that optimism is a choice. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I do say that optimism is a choice, that we can actually choose what we focus on. And we can focus on doom and gloom and get really depressed and do nothing. Or we can choose to focus on the people who are trying to make a difference. And there are many people out there and they need your support. So that's my choice. And it is a choice. Sometimes, you know, we have to choose more than once, right? I mean, you know, getting, as you said, hit over the head with bad news. So sometimes we have to go back and choose optimism again. But it is a choice, and it's one that, you know, I hope that more people make. Or maybe for people who don't like the word optimism, to choose possibility. I like that, actually. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Choose possibility. Possibility over inevitability. Yeah, that's really well said, Antonio. I like that. My guest has been Sue Inches. She's the author of Advocating for the Environment, How to Gather Your Power and Take Action. She teaches environmental advocacy in various colleges. She used to work in Maine state government. Sue, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been fascinating talking with you. And I have to say, I came into this feeling pretty jaded about this whole situation and politics in general. And um, this book really opened up my perspective Well, thank you, Antonio. I really appreciate that. This has been really fun, so thank you.
an ocean of emotion and divine devotion Opening the notions of medicines and potions Emanating the brilliance of a trillion suns As love flows in the current of the river that runs Tapping and unraveling a sacred conversation Grounding meditation in crazed illumination Communicating love is its own demonstration Arteries are city streets, open navigation Heart pulses, beats, lungs and trees both breathe deep As I leaf beat when the seasons repeat Subways and trains, blood vessels and veins All one in the same brain, given a different name Love is the limit as we give the heart a visit Moving up and then we're in it as we're living by the minute Impermanent phenomena, rise and fall To a feeling always calling, creating us all
talking about hate you know i think the only way we're going to do away with hate is to get so much love going around till it just won't be any more hate there's so much hate going on today on the right and on the left you see we hate our brothers yes we do and we hate our own self There's even hate going on 
listen to this next little verse, and if you feel like it, sing along. And if you don't want to sing along, maybe you can clap your hands. The good book says to love your enemy, but we don't comprehend. Tell me how can you love your enemy when you hate your fellow man? Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And if you haven't contributed, please go to WGDR.org and make a generous donation right now. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. (laughs) 